Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'm Jean Cameron Hill, host of Rediscovering Joy, a podcast to inspire women over 50 to find their passion, reinvent themselves, and be at their best. Christy Kiriko helps women explore their relationship with alcohol so they can live bigger, bolder, more brilliant lives. Christy launched her company, Purple Dog Sober, during the pandemic when there was an uptick in alcohol abuse among moms struggling to balance their work, their homes, and the education of their children. Christy's mission is to help others to break down the stigma and remove the shame of gray area drinking. Hey, Christy, thanks so much for being here today. Eugene, nice to be here. Can you tell us about your early years, childhood, and early adult experiences and how they may have shaped the path that you're on today? Yeah, sure. So I am the oldest of three children. I grew up in suburban Canada in the 70s and 80s and was really a time where, for better or for worse, parents didn't have a lot of ideas of what was going on or where their kids were or, you know, there was no cell phones, there was no tracking. So it was very much a time when yeah, I explored on my own a lot. We lived right at the edge of town and there's a big nature preserve there. So I was in the woods a lot, playing a lot, relying on myself a lot. And then, you know, I'm also the the oldest child of an alcoholic father. So that certainly shaped who I am. I tried to protect my brother and sister and tried to keep peace in the family and tried to, you know, do all the things. So that certainly has helped to shape who I am. Did you have any alcohol experiences in college? I did in college simply because, I, I, you know, I was a competitive athlete growing up, so I never drank in high school, really. I was always training, always in off-season training. Like, there was always that training. So when I went to college and stopped playing, yeah, then there was a lot of, like, trying to figure out this whole drinking thing. And, you know, I think, you know, starting to drink because I didn't know anybody at the college I went to, so trying to fit in, trying to be more social try to figure out who I was. So I absolutely used alcohol a lot in college as a way to cope as well with stress and just being a young adult and trying to figure out your way in life. Yeah, I get that. I was very shy. And when I got drunk, I became an extroverted gene and popular and, you know, life at the party and sort of a false sense of security. Yes, 100%. What were some of the specific moments that brought about change for you? Yeah, lots. But, uh, you know, a couple that stand out was when, uh, you know, I got married and the person I married lived in New York City. So I moved from Western Canada, where I grew up near the Rocky Mountains, to New York City, where I knew nobody. So I moved away from friends, family, you know, all the support, moved to New York City and started teaching. So really just had to again, reinvent myself, reconnect with people, build up a support network. So that was the way um, I had to deal with some change. You know, having kids certainly catalyzed change in my life. And then, you know, September 11th was a big, a big change. We lived two blocks from the World Trade Center and we lived in New York City. And that was a big, wow, of just realizing like your whole world shifted for everybody that day. And as as a Canadian citizen in the U.S. trying to figure out what that meant for me. And then my divorce was a big change again, like re-identifying re, re myself, rebuilding myself, figuring that piece of myself out. And then um, sobriety was another big change. I seem to go through these sort of cataclysmic changes every five or six years. 
What was the impetus for you to get divorced? And then what brought you to decide to quit alcohol? You know, the divorce piece, I think just both of us, for sure, losing our way, trying to figure out who we were, probably not dealing with issues when we needed to, letting them sort of really build up. And then there's a lot of drinking in my marriage. That's kind of what we did as a couple. We were like the party couple. So that was a big thing where we were just ignoring a lot of our problems, our issues. Again, we lived on the other side of the country from our family, so didn't have a lot of family support. So it was just, a, you know, it really just kind of withered out our marriage. And then, you know, by the time I think we realized we needed to work on it, it was kind of too late. And then my looking at my alcohol use, it didn't come up until about a year after my divorce. I had a really good friend who suggested I should keep lots of wine in my house because it was going to be lonely when my kids weren't there. And I was like, yeah, I could totally, I'm really good at keeping wine in my house or, you know, I'm not, that's the thing I could do. Right. So about a year after my divorce, I just realized I was like, cause that's when, yeah, I was drinking alone a lot on my couch because there was nothing else to do. Or, you know, I was telling myself there was nothing else to do. And it was a way to sort of cope with some stress, cope with a little bit of anxiety as we were going through the whole process. And it was just starting to really impact how I felt physically, mentally, emotionally, all those things. So I was originally, I just gave it up for 30 days. How did you come to the realization that it had become a problem? Really, I started it out with I'd had a really bad weekend of drinking. Just it was a girl's trip to the Finger Lakes to go to the winery. So I drank a lot, but not out of the it looks kind of normal sometimes. You know what I mean? The drinking I came back from that just feeling like crap. And I was like, you know, I'm going to give up drinking for 30 days and sort of reset myself, see how I feel for health reasons. You know, I gained some weight during my divorce, post-divorce. And I was like, you know what? I really just want to see how I feel. And then I had some really good friends, you included, who kind of just stepped in and held my hand. And, you know, we had some real good conversations about alcohol. And then about two weeks into it, I felt so clear-headed. So I felt so much better. I was like, I don't want to put that crap in my body ever again. Here I am five and a half years later. And don't they call it the pink cloud? When you, I'm still the pink cloud, like yeah. for real. Like I feel like that's, I, I, I get that terminology and I feel like, though well, I still am in a pink cloud because I just feel so much better. It's amazing the clarity that comes with it. Yeah. You know, going back, looking at my own marriage, I married two weeks, or I actually met my my uh, ex, my husband two weeks before I stopped drinking. Oh, interesting. Uh, so we were married 27 years. I didn't drink, and he did. Uh, yeah. And that was probably one of the areas where we obviously didn't connect because drinking was a big part of his life, and we couldn't share that bottle of wine like couples do, like on Valentine's Day, going out and having a bottle of champagne. And it really, yeah, it forced us or forced me to look at my life and realizing that I needed a connection with someone who didn't drink. Right. Looking back, what were some of the rough patches in your life when you drank a lot? Rough patches. I mean, you know, September 11th was a rough patch. Like that's when I really, you know, my ex-husband and I, we drank every night after work because we were out of our apartment for a month and 
we just didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody kind of really did. So that was one rough patch, you know, and then my ex-husband, he traveled a lot and I was home with two, two little kids in a city that I didn't really know anybody in. And I was working full time and I was doing my doctorate part time. And I was under a lot of stress, even though it's At the time, I didn't think about it. I just went like full force. And that's when, yeah, I really started to, you know, ramp up my drinking bit by bit, just because it was that thing at the end of the day after teaching and then coming with my kids and then trying to work on my dissertation. Like it was just that exhaustion, that stress and that reward that I, that I felt that I needed at the time. Yeah. That reward is carrot that, yeah. What was it like being close, so close to 9-11, to the, to the crash? Did you actually see the planes go in? I did not. I was up in the Upper West Side teaching. By that point, my husband, my ex-husband was home and saw one of them. You know, by the time I got back to the apartment, I just never got back to my apartment after that day. I went to work that morning and, you know, I had those, I had those clothes that I was wearing. And eventually, you know, I did go shopping and get some other things, but I you know, wasn't in my house for a month. So by the time I got back, there was still, uh, you know, our neighborhood was destroyed. It was just because there was just generators and there was a helicopter landing pad. There was armed guard. Like it was just, I was like, where am I living? Yeah. Um, Devastating. So it was just a little, uh, a little tense. When you told your parents that you decided to stop drinking, how did they react? I don't even, I didn't even really tell them because, so I quit in October. I went home to visit my mom two months later. Was your dad still actively drinking? He, yeah, he, my dad quit for 25, 30 years and then started drinking again in his 70s when red wine was good for your heart bullshit came out. So that is, yeah, that, and then he just drank up to his death. But I didn't tell them, I told, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't tell them because it just sort of never came up. And then when I, my mom and I were sitting around having dinner, she's like, oh, I forgot to get you some wine. And I was like, actually, you know, I'm not, I'm not drinking right now. I told her a little bit about why, like how it was just sort of messing up my life, you know, and, it, and she was just like, oh, okay. She's like, I'm really proud of you. And then I think it came up, my dad maybe heard about it or whatever. And then he called me and he was like, I mean, you know, my dad t- didn't tell me. He's like, I, I am so proud of you. He said, and he's like, one day I hope you can be proud of me again, because I know that his drinking bothered him. He just didn't know how to get out of it that second time. Wow. And what about your brother and sister? We've all had struggles with alcohol. And, you know, my sister quit drinking when she was 18, and she probably quit for about 10 years. And now she does drink again, but very, she's just very much now one of those drinkers who can have one or two drinks and she's okay. And my brother has certainly struggled. He quit drinking for two or three years and has just started drinking again. So I don't know where that's going to lead. I do just always tell him to be cognizant of it creeps in super silently. And then all of a sudden you realize, wow, I am drinking a lot. So it sure does. Yeah, we've all struggled with it. I remember when I told my parents, my father said, now don't tell anybody. And my mother said, geez, so that's why we've never gotten along. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So what brought about Purple Dog Sober? How did you morph into that from AA? And what about AA was not was not appealing? I know people who love AA and who've had great experiences, and I'm so happy for them that they've had that in their journey. I just did not connect. I think there's a lot of gr- strength in the steps, 
but it just never resonated with me the way they were so kind of formulaic and the way you were supposed to work through them. So and might be the group process was. Yeah. And also, yeah, I think it depends on who was leading that AA, that meet. You know what I mean? Like there's so many factors that go into creating a group. And I know people have had great experiences in Lubbock and I wish Sometimes I do wish that I'd had that experience, you know what I mean? But that wasn't just, that wasn't part of my journey. So luckily, sort of when I was starting, there was a lot of online support that I reached out for. And I think a lot, there's so much stigma and shame still around this idea of just exploring what alcohol is doing in your life, that I really wanted to create a space where there's no judgment, no shame, no stigma. And that, you know, a lot of women are still very hesitant to talk about it because what it says about them as a mother when it comes up that they might drink too much, there's just so much shame around that. So there's one-on-one work I do with women. It's private. Nobody has to know about it. It's just a way to help you get some language and sort of build up that strength so that you can talk about it with others and you realize that there is, you are not the person to blame for where you are. It's an addictive substance. So some people can sail through life and and use it and be fine and others can't. That's kind of what it comes down to. What are some of the questions that you ask a woman who's on the fence about, gee, am I an alcoholic or am I not? Like how how would- I talk a lot about, um, you know, how, how alcoholic is such a uh, in a way, it's a bit of an outdated term. Like that's an like it's either or. Like you're either an alcoholic or you're not. As opposed to there's that spectrum alcohol use disorder. It's that spectrum, that gray area drinking. That you get to be the one to decide how much alcohol is too much in your life. For some people, it is just they're binging on the weekend. The rest of the week they're fine, but that weekend just throws them off. So that's a thing to explore. Other women are drinking every night or almost every night. And that's just another way to explore it as well. So I really talk about that a lot. Yeah, just like what you're using alcohol to help you cope with. We talk a lot about different tools, different strategies to help you cope, to help you regulate your nervous system, all those things that kind of go into it. But I just always talk about it's just like, you know, when you look at a nutrition label to see if there's maybe too much sugar in it in a, in a product or to see what what's in it. It's the same thing we do with alcohol. Like alcohol is a substance that has an effect on your body. Can you explain more about gray area drinking? I mean, I and do you advocate abstinence from alcohol or do you believe that you can still drink and have a uh, good questions? Um, so gray area drinking is. It is. It's just that gray area from someone who hardly ever drinks to that person who is almost in that problem drinker stage. So it's anyone in that gray area. And then abstinence. I 100% believe in abstinence because I feel, let me rephrase that a little bit. Some people maybe can occasionally drink and be fine with it. I know some people have a glass of champagne once a year on New Year's and then the rest of the time, you know, whatever, they have a glass of wine the odd time they go for dinner. But I feel like if you get to that point where you are questioning your relationship with alcohol and you're trying to sort of rein it in, I always just ask my client, like, how much energy are you putting around your alcohol use? Because there's a lot of energy. You're like, you know, you're how many times, you know, what if I have one glass of wine and a glass of water? Okay, I'm only going to drink on Tuesdays. Okay, I'm only going to drink white wine. Nope, I'm only going to drink vodka. That'll be good. I'm only going to drink Thursday to Sunday. Like, just all that energy you're putting around managing the substance, it's often just easier to get rid of it. 
because then you're not constantly do I have enough wine at home? What's going to, who's going to be drinking tonight? What am I going to, like, you're just always asking yourself those questions. So a lot of times it is absence is just easier because then it's just out of your life. You don't think about it. You have other tools, coping strategies. Now you can just see how much better you feel. What if one of those coping strategies is weed? How do you feel about that in lieu of drinking? I have some pretty strong opinions about that. I thought, I think it's, again, you're just taking off one band-aid and putting a different band-aid on. So I really, in fact, I, I worked with a client who had discovered that she was using weed for the exact reason she used to drink. The start, it was just like she'd had a, have a gummy or two, and then, then it turned into actually smoking weed, and then it became maybe like a once-a-week thing. Maybe it was a night thing to help her relax, and then it just became, she's like, I, this, I'm not doing this. And I think, you know, it can be the same with Alcohol-free beverages sometimes. If you're just using, you know, you're still drinking a six-pack of alcohol-free beer every night, you know, you're you're maybe not exploring the reasons why you're drinking. You're not bringing enough other things into your life. You're just, again, like taking a Band-Aid and putting a different Band-Aid on. Uh, Good point. Talk about your sketchbooking and how that plays into your coaching. You know, so the sketchbooking is a technique that I used myself when I was um, going through a divorce. And then again, when I got sober, it's not the sketchbook. I know when I say sketchbook, people imagine like a still life and classical music on and you're just calmly sketching with pencils or whatever. But it's just using paints, words and images. It's so deconstructed that anybody can jump in and, and be creative right away. But it's a way to start First, you sort of use it when craving sit to sort of distract yourself to sort of work through what why you're why you're having a craving so you can start noticing what's happening in your body. And then it becomes a place just to keep a record of who you are, what dreams you have, what you want to do, practicing language you want to use. And then it's just it's a real fun place to do some deep work because, you know, as adults, we don't have a lot of places where we're we play. And this is a place that starts bringing, it's a lot about bringing that joy into your sobriety, that this is a place of just like getting your hands messy and, you know, sort of detaching from things for, uh, for you know, half an hour or whatever. And then, um, yeah, you're just working through some stuff, but you're also just having fun painting and playing. Well, it was very valuable for me. I remember doing the sketchbook with you in one of your uh, classes, and I cut out pictures of exotic places. And I came to the realization that I need to get away. And I made the decision to go and take a month off from work and go to Bali. And I don't think I ever would have come to that realization had I not gone through the exercise of sketchbooking with you. Thanks. I mean, I remember when you had that moment where you're like, this is what I need to do. So I totally remember that. If somebody wants to reach out to you, how do they find you? So I have my website, purpledogsober.com, which is a real content-rich website. I put up a blog post almost every week. I put up videos. You can also connect with me there. You can book a discovery call, which is just a 30-minute free, like, hey, let's see if this is a thing, if we could work together kind of a call. Also on Instagram, purple at purpledogsober. Now, how did you come up with that name? Yeah, it really just came out of the... You know, when you were told in school in kindergarten that you that did that wrong, you colored the dog wrong, dog has to be brown or black or white, it can't be purple or green or whatever. And I think because a lot of women start shutting down, 
elementary school, middle school, high, because they're always being told something's wrong. They're too loud. They're too short. They're too thin. They're too fat. They're too this. They're too, I think that, that the purple dog is just that permission to yourself that you can just color the dog any color you want and you get to be who you want. Sort of moves into that radical self-acceptance that I talk a lot about as well. I think it's great that you have found what works for you and for your clients. I know AA isn't for everybody. It's been my choice of how to, I stay sober. I found Zoom meetings with women who are like me and and it that and that's worked. But I always felt uncomfortable being in group meetings, you know, with men and women sharing my deepest, darkest secrets. So I think that a woman who wants to be remain anonymous and just connect with one person, I think you offer the perfect solution for that Thank person. Yeah, no, I'm really proud of you. You've done an awesome job. I love reading your blogs. You're such a gifted writer, and you really speak from the heart, and it certainly has spoken to me. What advice do you give women considering a major life change or just take a different direction, and what are your, what is your brass ring to success? I think that if you're considering making a major life change, like life is too short. Like you think you have the luxury of time and I don't, you know, but we don't know how much time we have. None of us do. If we're lucky, we get to live into our 80s and 90s and be super health, you know, healthy all that way. But we don't, that's not guaranteed. So I think that life is too short. And then also just what is your indecision costing you? Like when I look back at when I was thinking of getting sober, like my alcohol use was really costing me a lot in my life. And just sort of what, so if you're stuck in that indecision, like what is it costing you? And I think even, you know, maybe just being super basic and going through some pros and cons and seeing which which way you end up. But I think a lot of us know deep down inside that the change is, is ready to happen, but it takes us a while to get it out. And then my brass ring to success. You know, my sobriety was really my brass ring to my success. It just came at a time when I didn't have a lot of self-worth post-divorce. I didn't know what the future looked like. And just getting rid of that and knowing that I can do really hard things. And that gave me a platform to just keep reaching and doing really hard things. And it gave me self-confidence, self-love, self-acceptance. All the things that sometimes it seems the world doesn't want women to have. Well, you're someone to look up to and you're a prime example of what you speak. So I think you've already mentioned how people can get a hold of you. Your website purpledogsober.com and and everyone out there get on your email as so that you can take advantage of your awesome posts that would be great yeah thanks christy i really appreciate you spending time with me thanks so much gene this was great thank you so much for listening follow us at bejoyful.love and subscribe on amazon spotify or google so you can embark on your own journey of joy Until next time, God bless and be joyful.